My local grocery store or supermarket is the perfect example of nudge theory in action. When I first go inside, the fresh fruit and the bakery are right at the entrance. Now, this is typical globally for good reason. The smell of the baked goods, the brightly colored fruits, and the easygoing music on the speakers are all attempts to make me relax. When I'm relaxed, I'm hungrier. And when I'm hungrier, The milk is usually on the opposite side of the store from the bread. So if you've come to just get milk and bread, there are a lot of choices to pass up between the two. Hi, how are you? I think we're going to try two of the bacon cheddar potatoes and two of the herb and garlic potatoes. Those look good. Every aisle and shelf offers interventions that involve altering small-scale physical and social environments or micro-environments. The spin doctors use the term choice architecture. Thank you. So if I come on Fridays, the prawns are half off? Yes, sir. The big companies like Coke and Pepsi pay extra to reserve shelves at eye level. Eye level is buy level. If you have a favorite grocery store, you get to the point where you know where everything is. And then suddenly, one day, they change all the displays, but in a really weird way. And you don't know where things are anymore. Well, they do that on purpose, not to make things easier, but to make things more disorienting. Suddenly, you need to pay more attention, so you get distracted by more items. So today, on Stories and Strategies, some of these nudges are manipulative. Hey, how are you, Debbie? Good, how are you? I'm good. And some are really trying to do a good thing. And um, here's your doll on the ground up for the Alberta Children's Hospital. And Round donate up? 62 cents. Yeah, okay. okay. Help the hospital? Yeah. So 62 cents and then it makes it 27 even. Debit or credit for your love. On credit today. Thank you, sir. We look at nudge theory. Brilliant behavioral economics? Or is it getting too pushy? My name is Doug Dales. A bit of music off the top from Brian Adams' Brand New Day, written by Adams and Jim Valance on the Polydor label. My guest today is Rory Sutherland. Hi, Rory. Hello there. Hi, and you're joining us today from Kent, uh, just southeast of the big city of London, right? That's it. Yep. Been there more or less um, for the last year. I've been into London, I think, three times since February 2020 yeah uh, when previously that was something like four times a week or five times a week you know i think if new york is the city that never sleeps london is the city that just never stops it seems to go on and on forever geographically so it's it's nice to see there's some some separation somewhere yeah i think it's one of those interesting places where you'll see much more uh property shift 
if we move to a kind of two days a week uh, flexible working model. You're right. This whole COVID thing is is nudging us, shall I say. Rory, I'll say it. You're one of the most creative thinkers in marketing and communications. You're, of course, Ogilvy's vice chairman. And, and I read once uh, that you suggested to Microsoft, they, they make it possible for people to share office documents on the internet. And the idea was scoffed at. So even the best lose it nudge theory sometimes. Yeah, in fairness, I had a very strange advantage there because although at university I was a classicist, my brother was at the same university and was a kind of astrophysicist and mathematician. And so classicists didn't really get any mainframe uh, computer time back in 1988 or 87. Uh, but I could blag my brother's login. And I was an early and enthusiastic user of the internet back in the late 80s where more or less it consisted of email and things called news groups, which you probably remember as well, do you? So you had alt.rec.pets.cats, which would be the place where cat lovers who are then online would share their obsessions. And there was a famous internet event that happened, I think, in the late 80s, when alt.pets.rec.cats was invaded by the members of alt.rec.humor.tasteless. And so a lot of people who are um, the pets enthusiast group, of course, consisted, um, you know, what the Internet would later become. Lots and lots of cat pictures and lovely stories about how nice Tibbles was. And one day it got invaded by purveyors of sick humour who just set out to upset the cat lovers. And it was it, long before you had, say, you know, the whole GameStop uh, thing or many of these other online orchestrated campaigns. That was one of the earliest ones. No, well, now we have protocols where we can say pause off to people on those. Lovely. And it was it was interesting because uh, it struck me as fairly evident that this was an important technology even then. And so when the web finally came along in 94, which also my brother told me about very early, um, he was then living in Berkeley and his his flatmate in Berkeley had previously been Tim Berners-Lee's flatmate in CERN. And so word of the web reached the Sutherland family disproportionately early. So I had this um, uh, th this kind of very early epiphany, I think. Let, let's talk about nudge theory. Um, people may or may not be familiar with it, but regardless, everyone listening right now has already been nudged several times today. Oh, I mean, if you include habit and you include social copying and so forth, um, you know, you could argue that the greater part of our behavior is not really consciously mediated. And the other important insight of nudge, which I see as at its best, and there's a, there's a dark side to it as well, which I'll talk about later happily, but at its best, it's a problem-solving uh, tool. And it simply comes from the fact that people's actions are strongly affected where the action of atoms and physical objects differ from the behavior of humans is that we perceive the world contextually and therefore it's possible to change behavior without necessarily changing the objective reality very much at all but merely by changing the context and i think when you change the context of something you change the meaning when you change the meaning you change the emotional response and when you change the emotional response you change the behavior so i mean you know, I'm, one of the reasons I'm fascinated by video conferencing is that it took a large imposed simultaneous imposition of behavior on people to discover what the upside was. I'm not denying, by the way, there's a downside. 
And the benefits and the disadvantages are very, very unequally spread. So it's probably worth remembering that there's a middle-aged bloke who's slightly sick of commuting and who has children who are 19, who don't need to be homeschooled and who lives in a reasonably large house surrounded by garden. Um, the upsides to not having to go into the office outweigh the downsides. If I had a nightmare flatmate, two young children, was having to homeschool the children, the, the equation is very, very different. But I mean, it's always worth understanding that how people behave uh, is heavily affected by context and presentation and phraseology, everything else. And economics is to some extent an attempt to obtain a kind of spurious certainty by pretending that these forces don't exist. The context. You, you have a couple of examples of how subtle nudge theory can be well i mean a classic example is that we always favor i think rational explanations for things over emotional or psychological uh explanations and concomitant with that is we always favor rational solutions to problems over problems that involve psychology and i'm not suggesting by the way both kinds of problem solving aren't important i'm simply suggesting we've got the balance slightly wrong um and, um, you know, I, I was giving a talk to the finance department of Ogilvy only this morning, and I jokingly said, look, uh, you people all have this rational idea that, you, you know, that paying people means making them rich and you make them rich by paying them more money. I said, it's worth bearing in mind that there's an inexpensive alternative to that, which is if you could make people feel rich, OK, you've achieved the same thing with less money. And I'm always interested in this, by the way, because I think it's an interesting philosophical question, which is, what do people need in order to feel wealthy? Which is a much more interesting and much more creative question than how do we do more with more, which seems to be the question that economics mostly asks, you know. And most assumptions about progress are assuming moreness in some way. You have a couple of examples of how subtle nudge theory can be. For example, fish stores located near the seaside tend to do better business and coffee shops who leave their patio chairs out even when it's raining tend to have more sales tell me about those those two bits of phenomenon so you know the economic explanation of a store having a sale is you reduce prices because of the price demand curve demand goes up because prices are down actually a lot of the a lot of the potency of a retail sale is actually created by scarcity and social proof in other words, you create a massive short-term event around this. You go to a shop, lots of people are bargain hunting furiously. You tend to join in, and you're also conscious of the fact that goods on sale tend to be on short supply, whereas goods at full price aren't. So what's going on in a sale is a complex mixture of economics and psychology, but the economic explanation tends to be given um, higher uh, consideration over the psychological one. And so I, I was talking to some people at London Business School. And I said, I've got a lovely exam question for you, which is to ask, why are there more fish restaurants by the sea? And it's the perfect question to ask to MBAs, because what MBAs will go on is they'll burble on about supply chains, distribution, low distribution costs, access to produce, blah, 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 blah. And I said, the interesting thing is all those answers are plausible, but either completely untrue or at least very far from being the full story. And the way I explain this is as follows, okay? First of all, if you want access to high quality fish at low prices, the place you'd go is Billingsgate Market in London. Uh, it's not the seaside, 
okay, because that's the central distribution hub for most of the UK's high quality fish. And I said the more likely explanation, to be honest, is that fish tastes better by the sea. Now, if you think about it, proof points. One, there aren't a lot of of fish restaurants around Billingsgate Market. There are some meaty restaurants around the meat market, but by and large, not what you'd expect if distribution and supply were really the issue. But the second thing is you don't get lots of fish restaurants three miles inland. Where you get fish restaurants is slap bang on the coast, on the beach. You know, I've got a little flat down by the Kent coast in Deal and eating, put it this way, eating fish and chips on a beach is fundamentally more enjoyable than eating fish and chips in a park. Okay. now it's possible this is an evolved instinct. It wouldn't be ridiculous, would it, that humans would feel more confident eating seafood close to a large body of water than they did in land. Okay, that would hardly be ridiculous. Okay, because it's not a bad measure of freshness. But this is not, by the way, uncommon. Rosé wine tastes better by the sea, fascinatingly. Um, uh, Interestingly, um, you know, wine tastes better if you pour it from a heavier bottle. Wine tastes better if you tell people it's expensive. Uh, Wine can taste better if you tell people a load of bullshit stories about the terroir and the extraordinary Frenchman who produces it and, you know, what his cat's called. Okay, you can change the taste and experience of things by adding ancillary information or context. Um, painkillers are more effective if they're red. I think that's true. Um, uh, painkillers are more effective if they're branded. Painkillers are more effective if you tell people they cost a lot of money. And so quite a lot of these things, our emotions are not merely a reaction to the objective sensation of the thing itself, but also to the context in which the thing is being consumed. Okay, so I always think that's an interesting case. Now, the other interesting cases are things which we Things which are advertisements, which we never think of as advertisements. So you mentioned the coffee shop. And I said, I've got a coffee shop about a quarter of a mile away here. And it's on a busy road. And one of the things I noticed, and I actually told them this, is, look, um, your predecessors, okay, um, had sort of heavy benches outside, which were outside all the time. And strangely enough, they kind of went bust. You've now invested in a load of chairs and tables which fold. Okay, and a kind of windbreaky thing that goes around the front of the coffee shop. Now, two things are important about that, which is one, if you see a a shop with chairs and tables outside from 300 yards away from a fast moving car, your brain instinctively knows two things. There's a coffee shop there and it's open. And the reason you know it's open, which you don't know if you've got wooden benches, okay, is because if it were closed, they would have put the chairs away. Now, the interesting thing about that is I said, very simple bit of advice, even if it's pissing with rain, leave your chairs outside, because from 400 yards away, it tells people that a coffee shop exists at that location, and it's open for business. Therefore, if you feel like decelerating now and trying to park, you can confidently expect the supply of coffee in this place. Let's take it from marketing to governments. Governments love nudge theory. There's the famous nudge unit in the UK, uh, but... Other countries, Germany, Japan, Australia, the United States under President Obama, although I had a look at their website. It, it looks like they might have shut their nudge team down. I'm not sure. And, and even Canada has a nudge team. I don't think any of us actually knew. You, 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 say, you say even – you're being very unfair, even Canada. I consider Canada one of the most advanced countries in the world in this. 
Well, the Rotman School, for example, does exceptional work. Yep, you've got Dinny Soman, who's one of the, one of my total gurus. So, no, no, I, I actually think that oddly, although it originated in the US, it's taken off in Australia, Canada, India. Uh, it, it, it arises huge interest, Southeast Asia. It's actually been a, you know, a bit like, you know, it's a bit like the British invasion in pop, that something that originated fundamentally in the US seems weirdly to get more successfully adopted for a time. I don't think this will be permanent. But but as of now, actually, the, you know, what you might call Commonwealth countries um, have actually shown rather more of an appetite. South Africa, likewise. OK, but why do governments love nudge? And, and, and let me ask point blank. Have they been successful at all in solving issues like obesity, uh, vaccination acceptance, other things that need good nudges? Well, the first thing is within the realm of experimentation, you can't be hostile to nudge. One, because it is at least persuasion rather than um, uh, compulsion. Okay. So it does give people the freedom not to do the thing you're nudging them to do, should they conceive of a good reason not to do it. Now, one of the weird things about government, I think, is that government, and this is Richard Thaler speaking, the co-author of the book Nudge with Cass Sunstein. Okay. He wrote, I think, in the New York Times that Washington is dominated by lawyers who occasionally take advice from economists. No one else interested in helping out the lawyers need apply. And as a result of this very unequal distribution of talents in government, it tends to adopt a legislation first, incentive second, persuasion third, approach to problem solving. Okay. Now, what, now, don't get me wrong, there are problems which can only be solved by collective compulsion, or there are problems which need economic incentives as part of the solution. It's, it's both and, not either or. But even if you're not a nutter libertarian, right, I think any reasonable person should argue that you should attempt persuasion first, incentive second, and compulsion third. Now, a huge amount, actually, of the COVID behaviour, a lot of it was driven by fear, let's be candid, okay? Um, but an awful lot of our the, the pro-social behaviour through the COVID crisis was driven by essentially voluntary collective action. Okay, we simply don't have the police force to police this. Should we have a large number of people disobeying the instructions, you know? Um, and uh, it seems to me a really important lever that government can pull. I mean, another lever government can pull, by the way, is just asking people really nicely. And so defaulting to this um, legalistic solution is really a silly way to go about it, but it's a product of the fact that to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and to a man with a law degree, everything looks like a legal problem. And my, my simple argument in the defense of nudge theory is, if nothing else, okay, it expands the possible solution space. If you're willing to consider voluntary behavioral change or persuasion or nudging as one contributory thing as part of the solution, then your solution space is going to be much bigger and your space for meaningful experimentation, which is how we should proceed more and more, I think, is with randomized control trials. Um, you know, if you add that option into the mix, then your potential for finding interesting solutions is going to be bigger. Because if you're confined to law and economics, okay, those things don't really offer you much room for creative interventions. 
You make a wonderful argument in support of the positives of nudge theory. Can I be a bugger for a second? Yeah, yeah, go, go, go. There are negatives. All right. So I'm going to play an example for you um, of how nudge theory can actually be from the dark side. It's a clip from the BBC series, Yes, Prime Minister. In this scene, Sir Humphrey Appleby, played by Nigel Hawthorne, of course, explains... When it comes to survey questions, it's all in the sequencing of how you ask the questions. Well, the party have had an opinion poll done. It seems all the voters are in favour of bringing back national service. Well, I have another opinion poll done showing the voters are against bringing back national service. <laughs> we can't be for it. Oh, against. of course they can, Bernard. Have you ever been surveyed? Yes. Well, not me, actually. My house. Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> well, Bernard, you know what happens. Nice young lady comes up to you. Obviously, you want to create a good impression. You don't want to look a fool, do you? <laughs> No. no. So she starts asking you some questions. Mr. Woolley, are you worried about the number of young people without jobs? Yes. Are you worried about the rise in crime among teenagers? Yes. Do you think there's a lack of discipline in our comprehensive schools? Yes. Do you think young people welcome some authority and leadership in their lives? Yes. Do you think they respond to a challenge? Yes. Would you be in favour of reintroducing national service? Yes. <laughs> oh, well, I suppose I might. Yes or no? Yes. Of course you would, Bernard. After all you've told you, you can't say no to that. <laughs> so, they don't mention the first five questions, they publish the last one. Is that really what they do? Well, not the reputable ones, no, but there aren't many of those. <laughs> so, alternatively, the young lady can get the opposite result. How? Mr. Woolley, are you worried about the danger of war? Yes. Are you worried about the growth of armaments? Yes. Do you think there's a danger in giving young people guns and teaching them how to kill? Yes. Do you think it's wrong to force people to take up arms against their will? Yes. Would you oppose the reintroduction of national service? Yes. <laughs> That's, that, just to be clear, that is both a very strong defence of nudge theory, in the sense that how you present a question to a person will majorly affect their emotional response. It works, yes. Okay? So it works. Undoubtedly, you can use that for ill. I, I'm also reminded of something in the West Wing where they say uh, they're discussing the legalization of cannabis. And one person says it's electoral suicide. And another person says, well, um, if you just look at the under 30 demographic, you'll find a small minor majority in favor to which someone replies. He says, yes, but if you restrict the survey sample to the members of Bob Marley and the Whalers, you'll find an even larger majority in favor. <laughs> OK, and so undoubtedly you can play fast and loose with statistics, by the way, and you can play fast and loose, which is one reason why, you know, this idea that we should somehow adopt perfectly scientific government is a bit of a non-starter. And by the way, you know, this applies to economics as well, whether something is cheap or expensive, whether something is valuable or not valued depends on how we frame it. And so um, an example I'll give of... of um, Nudge theory, which worked for reasons people didn't fully understand. We used to have a thing in the UK called an ISA, and you were allowed to put £3,000 a year into your ISA. And that then went into a savings typically invested in the stock market from which you were absolved from capital gains. Sure. We have a tax-free savings account. Uh, system similar similar yeah. system. Good idea, yeah. by the yeah. way. By the way, because it encourages people to save. For sure. What the economists did is they said, we'd like to encourage this even more. So they put the limit up from £3,000 a year to £20,000 a year. 
Now, let's be quite clear about this, right? First of all, there's an ethical question of if you can save 20, or in the case of a married couple, 40,000 pounds a year <laughs> off, out of out, after-tax income, you probably don't need a tax break from the government, okay? I think, I think we can say that. But the second problem was that when you kicked it from 3,000 to 20,000, the scarcity value of it disappeared. So really rich people punted in £20,000 because they thought, well, hey, I've got a huge tax break here. This is an alternative for my pension. Previously, people who could save £2,000 a year, which is a kind of normal middle class savings rate, okay, would go, well, I better put something in because if I don't put £2,000 in this year, I'll miss out. Once you took the limit up to £20,000, the sense of urgency had been completely destroyed. It was like having a, it was like Harrods holding a sale, which said all year sale, right? No one's going to rush along to that because they go, well, I can go any old time, right? Now, this created an impetus to people, which is, I don't want to throw away my £3,000 concession here, so I'm going to make some use of it. Put it up to £20,000, which an economist thought was a rational thing to do, and normal people who could only save two or £3,000 a year thought, well, there's no particular hurry this year. Tell you what, I'll have a holiday instead, and I can always put in £6,000 next year, something which they never did because... <laughs> that's how we are as human beings. And so that was a classic case of someone understanding the incentive through a purely economic lens and failing to understand that part of what made it work was actually a psychological factor. Rory, Rory there's more for us to talk about on Nudge Theory. Can I nudge you yep. to join me for episode two in a couple of weeks? Sound Absolutely okay? Absolutely delighted. I'd be as happy as anything. Awesome. If you'd like to send a message to my guests for part one of Nudge Theory, Rory Sutherland, the best way to do that is a, a direct message through Twitter, if you can. Uh, make sure you have the right Rory Sutherland. There's the rugby player in England. There's the professional cyclist. Scotland. Yeah, is he in he Scotland? Thank you for being called. He's actually a Scottish rugby player. The name is Scottish originally. Yeah. I should have said UK. Then I have it covered, right? That's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's also there's a, a professional cyclist, cyclist who's Australian. Australia. Yeah. 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 And I think you have more followers than both. No, occasionally, occasionally I get mistweeted. A short note, if you're a regular listener of this podcast, we've been publishing weekly since May 2010. We're now shifting to bi-weekly. Um, no shortage of episode ideas, great guests, um, or shortage of interest. Uh, this just gives me more space to work with my clients on their calm strategies and podcasts. Um, if you liked what you heard today, we're hoping to nudge you to follow stories and strategies, receive updated episodes automatically, which is another form of nudge. Uh, we'd love it if you followed us on Twitter. It's at calms underscore podcast. And also hoping you choose to follow and rate this podcast on any directory you're listening on. And do us a favor, recommend this podcast to one friend. That's another nudge. If you have an idea for an episode, you just want to tell us something, send us a note at info at jgrcommunications.com. Thanks for listening.